0: Well, last week I had opened with some history on the self-help industry. Surprisingly, the well-known maxim that heaven helps those who help themselves was not coined by a believer. We can actually trace it all the way back to an annual set of almanacs that Benjamin Franklin wrote in the 18th century. Today, the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry in a nation that strives for independence at every level. We'll pour in a ton of money into any methods to improve ourselves, whether it relates to our skills, abilities, wealth, status, or just overall well being. We have become a do it yourself kind of society. We want financial independence, we want physical independence, we want relationship independence, we even want spiritual independence. These are the characteristics of a society that revolves around the idea of self and the fulfillment of self. However, God has not called us to independence but dependence, first and foremost upon Him. And more important than any pursuit in this world is the pursuit of God and His holiness. My own previous pastors, both John MacArthur and Bill Shannon, would often repeat that God's desire for you is not your happiness but your holiness happiness is fleeting holiness endures but that does not translate to a dull and gloomy life here in this world that's often the portrayal of our faith but it is completely false if you read this chapter of Ephesians that we have been studying just this first chapter as we have been doing you find that the apostle Paul is not gloomy at all in fact quite the opposite He is so overcome with joy in the Lord that he can't stop praising God. And what we find in reading this letter is that the real secret to joy in this world is found in the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We find our joy in all three members. God the Father in his wondrous plan of salvation. We find joy in God the Son and His marvelous work on the cross and His intercession even now over us at the right hand of God. We find our joy in the Holy Spirit who sealed us and continues to minister to us with wisdom and revelation from God. It is all from God and requires us to pursue God and to trust Him for everything we need in this life. True success for the Christian is not found in self-help books, but rather through the provisions of God and our devotion to him and his word. Now, last week, I began covering Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 to 23. And initially, I thought I could do all that in one sermon. But last week, I realized I'm going to have to break it out into two. And this week, I realized it's going to have to be breaking out into threes. So this is going to be part two of a three part message, at least uh, through this prayer. And the reason why I'm spending so much time in this prayer is because that there are so many marvelous truths that I believe are monumental to your growth as a Christian, as a believer. Now, as your bulletin reflects, our overall purpose with Paul's prayer is for us to learn what we ought to pursue as believers in order to walk faithfully with God. But according to that bulletin, we're going to be focused this morning exclusively on point number three, which is the fruit of illumination. The fruit of illumination. But let's go ahead and read the entire passage this morning in its entirety, and then review the first two points before getting into the third. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, we read, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists amongst you, and your love for all the saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, as we saw last week, There are five timeless pursuits that we ought to pursue in order to walk faithfully with God. And the first one, as you see, is to remain steadfast in your faith and love. That's verses 15 to 16, when Paul says, For this reason, too, I have, having heard of the faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. While this prayer ties back to the praise in the prior verses that we saw from verses 3 to 14, we also see his praise for them based upon what he had heard about these Ephesian believers, specifically that they continue to endure in the faith in the Lord, and they have a continuing love for all the saints. These are two characteristics that every pastor or shepherd wants to hear about the flock that they're continuing to walk in the Lord, that they're continuing to exhibit a healthy love for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also see Paul revealing his prayers for them at the end of verse 16, which led us to the second timeless pursuit, which is to incline your heart to the illumination of God's word. And we see the content of this prayer starting in verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And we see that Paul's prayer is that God the Father, referred to as both the God of our Lord as well as the Father of glory, would give a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And depending upon the translation and interpretation, that could be interpreted as the spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. It could be interpreted as the inner man having a spirit in our our inner man, an attitude of wisdom and revelation. Or it could be assigning spiritual quality to the wisdom and revelation. Bottom line, though, is that all three possibilities point to the same realities. That it's God the Father that gives you wisdom and revelation. It's through the Holy Spirit that that wisdom and revelation is ministered to your heart. And it's for us as believers to receive and to be edified from. And as we see at the end of verse 17, he does this in the knowledge of him. That knowledge describes an intimate knowledge of God. It reflects the fact that you know God and you don't simply know about God. You know God, meaning you have a relationship with him. You don't simply just have facts about God and are called about that relationship. And then at the start of verse 18, we see this reference to the eyes of your heart being enlightened. This is a reality for every believer that through the Holy Spirit, we're able to comprehend spiritual truths that the natural man cannot. From the time of your conversion, you've had the work of the Holy Spirit that has opened the eyes of your heart to be able to understand the truths of God's word. But you have to incline your heart towards it. You have to seek it. You need to be in the word. You need to be walking with God in order to benefit from that illumination. And then from there, Paul reveals the purpose of this prayer request. Why he prays that you receive spiritual wisdom and revelation. That leads us now to the third timeless pursuit that we will focus upon, that every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God, which is to desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. To desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. And that purpose starts with the second part of verse 8, when you see the words, so that... Okay, this prayer that God gives you spiritual wisdom and revelation is so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And this is where we will focus our attention for this morning. Paul gives us three glorious realities that he wants us to know, that he wants us to understand as a result of this prayer request. And remember, Paul, as an apostle, he's one that has his eyes on the big picture. He had insight into the gospel like few other men ever had. And it was never just an intellectual exercise for Paul. This was the motivational driving factor. This was the fuel behind his ministry. This was the reason why he continually lifted up praise and worship to the good name of God. And having been called and used by our Lord. Having been blessed with amazing spiritual knowledge and the task of spreading the gospel, he wanted desperately for believers to grow. He wanted believers everywhere to grow, to be able to know what he knew, so that they could benefit like he benefited and be able to grow like he grew. And what is the key? Well, we start by looking again at this verse, starting with the word, so that... Those are important words as they typically lead to the purpose or result behind the prior statement. In this case, Paul tells us why in verse 17 he prayed that God would give us spiritual insight and revelation in the knowledge of God. Why is he praying for this? It is specifically so that you will know in verse 18. So that you will know. So often we think of the application of Scripture as being action-oriented, that we're going to do something, that we're going to go out and help people, that we're going to do something for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And certainly that is valid and good application. But what we often overlook is that sometimes the application is to know something. The application in terms of why Paul wants God to grant you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation is so that you will know. The purpose of illumination, the purpose of knowledge sometimes is deeper and more specific knowledge. Now, this sounds a little bit redundant, but this is exactly where Paul wants us to lead. You see, the more that we devote our hearts to the scriptures, the more that we soak the scriptures into our heart, the more we think upon these truths, the more we know. And the more we know, the more useful we become as Christians, so we see here in verse eighteen, the purpose of that knowledge is more knowledge. It's a specific kind of knowledge. Now, this often runs counter to the way we think today. We think of knowledge as being an ac- useless academic pursuit. In fact, um, I hear many Christians uh, quote First Corinthians chapter eight verse one. Let me read that for you. First Corinthians eight one reads this. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we All have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Another way to say that is love puffs up. I mean, sorry, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I'm sure you've heard that many times, even if you weren't sure exactly where in Scripture that came from. But beloved, can I tell you, that verse from 1 Corinthians 8, that's not a condemnation of seeking the knowledge of God. That is not a contradiction of what Paul is praying for here. That is not even a counterbalance to Paul's prayer for knowledge. If you read that verse again, listen to this. Paul is talking about things sacrificed to idols. He says, now concerning these things sacrificed to idols. And if you go on to read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 8, you'll find that Paul is talking about food sacrificed to idols. As Christians, we have the freedom to eat whatever we like. But there may be a weaker brother or sister in Christ whose conscience Is hurt by seeing us eat such foods that have been sacrificed to idols now in those cases where we know we have the freedom to do something but someone else doesn't realize it we might be tempted to say look that's that's your problem that's not my problem you just don't understand I'm exercising my freedom in Christ and if you don't get that that's your problem but then what happens you go ahead and exercise your freedom and in the process you wound their conscience So the rebuke here is against those who show no care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're prioritizing their own freedoms at the expense of someone else's conscience. In fact, I would argue that the issue is not too much knowledge. Paul is not saying it would be better not to have this knowledge. Paul is not saying that you should have less knowledge. No, that'd be ridiculous. The issue is that you're exercising this knowledge without love for your fellow brothers and sisters. So don't let that statement, that knowledge puffs up, be understood falsely to discourage knowledge, but understand the context that it's knowledge without love that Paul is condemning there. But here in Ephesians 1, the knowledge of God and his will is good. It is always good. However, following that same principle from 1 Corinthians 8, An increase of biblical knowledge should also come with an increasing love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's a truth that you understand that they don't understand, help open up the scriptures and lovingly share those truths with them in order to edify them. Or if it's something that's going to hurt their conscience, love them and and do everything you can not to put those stumbling blocks before them. But in this case, when Paul wants us to know, when he says, so that this prayer, is so that you will know, what is it that Paul specifically wants us to know? Well, there are three things that Paul wants us to know. In verse 18, we see the hope of his calling, followed by the riches of his glory in his inheritance in the saints. And then the surpassing um, power, uh, the great power of his uh, surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, for this morning, we're going to focus on the first two of those items, which is the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory in his inheritance in the saints. The third point ends up getting expanded from verse 19 really to the end of the chapter. So we're going to cover that next time. But let's start by talking about the hope of his calling, because this is so important for all of us as believers to understand. Well, when Paul says the hope of his calling... Obviously, there's hope that comes out of that, but in order to understand that hope, we have to first ask ourselves, what does he mean by his calling? What is God's calling? How does that apply to us? Well, if you remember the prior section, you remember that Paul used words like chose and predestined. Look again at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Verse 4, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, the call of God is synonymous with the fact that God chose you. He predestined you to salvation. That is the calling of God. Now, we have to be careful here. Because the word call has many meanings depending upon context. We even understand that in the English. For instance, you can call someone via phone. That's one way to apply call. Or you can call out someone's name. That's a different usage of the word call. Or you can call someone to service. Each usage of call is very different from one another. And when I say to you that I've been called to be pastor of Western Avenue Baptist Church, you understand that, too, is a different kind of call. And as it relates to salvation, there is even a generic call that is associated with sharing the gospel. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 22. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 22, after giving a parable of a wedding feast where the original invitees did not show up and where even one did not come prepared, dressed in the proper manner, Jesus ends with a note of judgment before concluding in Matthew 22, verse 14. He said, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. So in that case, the call Jesus refers to can be related to the general call of salvation. Everyone that you share the gospel with has been called in a general sense to respond to the gospel. They have been called to respond to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to repent of their sins. However, just as you know, not everyone you share with the gospel, not everyone you share the gospel with ends up responding to it. Sometimes they live out the rest of their lives, sadly enough, never responding to it. But they nevertheless have been called in a general sense. But in this case in Ephesians this call referred to here in Ephesians is connected tightly with your actual salvation. Turn with me to Romans. Go back four books to the left. Four books to the left you're going to go back go past Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and then you'll get to Romans. And in Romans chapter 8 well-known passage in Romans 8:28 through 30. Romans 8:28 through thirty. By the way, this is a great memory verse. If you're looking for some great verses to memorize, put this one down on your list if you haven't memorized it already. This is lifting up God's good sovereignty over all things. But listen to this. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, Paul writes this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified. So right there in Romans 8:28 to 30 we see that the call is tightly connected to your actual salvation. Another passage out of John, out of the Gospel of John, helps further explain this. You don't have to turn there, but while the word call doesn't show up, you'll see the same principles being explained. Listen to this, John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. John 10, 14 through 16. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock under one shepherd. When Jesus says, they will hear my voice, that's the same idea of that call, that effectual call, that they will respond to salvation, the call to salvation. And then in John chapter 10, verses 24 to 27, let me read to you this. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus' answer is amazing. He said back to them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name these testify of me so he's telling the Pharisees I have told you but you don't believe but verse 26 is very interesting he says you do not believe why because you are not of my sheep my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me So the call in that case is the call to salvation that will actually be responded to, that his sheep will actually respond to the voice of Jesus Christ. And of course, for us, that voice of Jesus Christ is heard through us whenever we proclaim the gospel, whenever we share the good news of salvation. So there is a general call that applies to all who hear the gospel, and there is a particular or what I might call an effectual call for those who actually respond and of course, Ephesians 1.18 doesn't just mention this calling, but rather the hope of his calling. That would be the second part of this. So, what is that hope? Well, the concept of hope in biblical times was very different than hope today. We talk about hope today with uncertainty, do we not? You know, like for instance, you know, we, we might say that I hope to win the lottery. Well, good luck with that, right? So we speak of something that that, that might happen, but there's often an element of uncertainty. In fact, we hope for things that we have a very slim chance of happening quite often. And the lottery is a great example. Well, there's a lot of hope spread across a lot of people. When you think about the lottery, there's a lot of hope spread across a lot of people who will never win, right? It's no wonder why some people refer to the lottery as a tax upon those who have failed math. But that's completely the opposite of biblical hope. While in this world we have hope that may never be realized, we have hope that may never come to fruition, we have hope that may have any any odds of uncertainty, biblical hope comes with full expectation of fulfillment. Let me give you some examples. Romans 5.5, this is what Paul says for us as believers, that hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then Titus 2.13, again, for us as believers, we're all looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Christ Jesus. And then Peter in 1 Peter 1.13, after talking about how the prophets of the Old Testament learned that they were serving you with their prophecies of Christ, Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In all those verses, hope is an absolute certainty, not something based upon chance, not something with the possibility of failure. But there are two prerequisites to biblical hope. I can talk about biblical hope all day long, but it's not going to help you unless two prerequisites are met. First, you need to know the object of that hope. In other words, what is it that you're eagerly anticipating? What is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you're putting your hope into? And second, you need to actually be setting your mind upon that hope. After all, if it's not in your mind, if it's not in your heart, if you're not thinking about it, what good is that hope? It's totally distant from you. So then the question is, what kind of hope does the calling of God produce for us? Well, right in context here in Ephesians, we know that there is hope wrapped up in all the spiritual blessings mentioned by Paul, starting in verse 3. That hope is found in the wonderful plan and promises of God, not only in saving you, but going from verses 3 to 14, he, he's blessing you with every spiritual blessing. He's lavishing his grace upon you. He adopts you as sons. He redeems you in his purpose to make you holy and blameless before him. In his promise that there will be a future time where our Lord as, and Savior will be visibly exalted. He's, he, he's blessing you through the inheritance that he has promised you with the eternity that he has promised that we will have with him in heaven. And that's why Peter said to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the value of fixing your hope upon what is to come well true hope if it's a true biblical hope is going to help you persevere through trials true biblical hope will help you endure faithfully in this life to the end true biblical hope will help produce joy that helps you withstand every tribulation every trial that comes your way true hope ends up showing unbelievers around you That you really believe in the Lord's promises, not in this life, but in the one to come. And true hope will give you a longing, not for the things of this world, but the things for the next world. True hope is Paul being able to say in Philippians 121, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's be able to say in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. True hope is being able to say that no matter what persecutions you suffer, no matter what trials or tribulations, no matter what pains come in this life, it's be able to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There is nothing that we will suffer through in this world that can even come close to comparing to the wondrous glories that await us in the future. That will help you endure in this life. That will help you to show a joy that surpasses all comprehension to believers around you. But you need to understand that joy. You need to understand that hope. And you need to have that, that joy coming out of your heart because that hope is in your mind. True hope is trusting in what we read from Romans eight twenty eight that those who were foreknown also have been predestined and that those who have been predestined have been called and that those who have been called have also been justified and that those who have been justified are also glorified. Paul speaks in the past tense of things that will happen in the future because these things are absolutely certain. They are absolutely certain for those who have been called by God. And for all of you, you not only need to remain fixated upon the hope that comes from your calling, but in order to strengthen that hope, Paul here wants you to continue to incline your hearts to God, to receive that wisdom and revelation from his word, through his spirit, so that you'll better understand and know that hope so that you will actually have more hope. So that even in those times of difficulties, you will actually be able to, with joy, look forward to what's coming in the future. And a true understanding of that hope will also direct direct us to right behavior and right action. So if you want to be able to grow in your actions as a Christian, if you want to be able to grow in your behavior, if you want to be able to grow in your fight against sin, it starts off with what you know. It starts off with your hope and what you understand. That's why, I mean, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is really the central commandment in the entire book. Ephesians 4, 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You see, the central commandment, even in the book of Ephesians, centers around the fact that you have been called. It centers around this understanding that you understand the hope of that calling. And so therefore, Paul wants you to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling by which you have been called. And it is a wonderful privilege for us to be able to follow Jesus Christ, to be able to glorify God, because we have been blessed far greater than we could ever bless anyone else. You see, the more you understand the calling, the greater your hope will be. And the greater your hope is, the more faithful your walk will be. You see, so many of us just want to be told what to do. But beloved, what you do as a disciple of Christ always starts first with what you know and understand through his word. Can I put it this way? Your walk as a Christian, your walk as a Christian will never rise Above the hope that you have in Christ. And the hope that you have in Christ will never rise beyond the knowledge you have of that hope as revealed in God's Word. So it starts with an understanding of God's Word in order to raise that hope, and that hope will raise your walk. It all starts with an understanding of God and His will through His Word. But there's more than just the hope of His calling. There's a second part to this purpose behind Paul's prayer that you receive spiritual wisdom and revelation, which is to know the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Once again, we see glory being mentioned. Paul had already praised God's glory three times in verses six, 12 and 14. And then he referred to God as the God as the Father and the God of glory in verse 17 to remind us of how glorious his plan is to us. But here specifically, Paul mentions the riches of the glory. This emphasizes the depth and the abundance of the glory involved. You may remember further back in verse 7, we saw the riches of his grace. That was tied to the incredible depth of grace given in providing you with ongoing forgiveness of sins. The idea was that God's forgiveness of all of your sins was not merely from grace, but it was from the riches of his grace. This is like going to someone like Warren Buffett and asking him to reach deep into his savings account just to bless you. But in this case, we're talking about God. We're talking about an abundance of grace being poured out upon you beyond all measure, beyond all comparison. But that was in verse 7. Here in verse 18, it says the riches of the glory. Paul is applying the same kind of superlative imagery as connected to God's glory. So we're talking about an abundance of glory. But we read further that these riches of the glory is found in his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. Now, there are two ways to interpret this, and commentators seem to be split down the middle. Either God is referring to the inheritance that he has for us as believers, or he's talking about his inheritance of us. So it's either your inheritance that you will receive when you get to heaven, or it's his inheritance of us as his possession. Well, either one theologically would make great sense in this context, but I would prefer the meaning that he is talking about actually God's own inheritance, Why? Because in this passage, it says his inheritance, not our inheritance. It says his inheritance in the saints, which is all of us, that refers to all of us in Christ. If he was referring to our inheritance, he could have easily just said your inheritance, or he could have said his inheritance for you. But he didn't say that. He said his inheritance in the saints. Now, can I tell you honestly, this to me was absolutely shocking Let me explain. First, we have to ask, what does his inheritance in the saints mean? Well, a couple of weeks ago, when I covered verses 11 through 14, I spoke about how we are God's possession. You may remember that. You see clearly at the end of verse 14, when it mentions the redemption of God's own possession, at a future time, there will be a final redemption of us as God's own possession. Of course, we belong to God now, but this will be fully realized when we're in heaven in his glorious presence. So here in verse 18, when it mentions his inheritance in the saints, this is referring again to us as believers being redeemed as his inheritance, as his possession. But here's the astounding part. This is what absolutely shocks me. It's this description of glory in us. It's not that we will have glory. That's not what shocks me. We already know from Romans eight twenty-eight to 30 that we will be glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 to 43, um, there's this emphasis about how we will be raised in glory. So we know those things to be true. It's not alien to us. What shocks me is that Paul describes our glory as rich. And that he wants us to know the riches of this glory in us as God's inheritance. You know what that tells me? That tells me that we matter to God. That tells me that there is a plan that God has for us. God has absolutely glorious plans for us that will reflect the riches of his glory in us. We are important to God. That's why going back to verse 4, what did we read? It said, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. We will be holy. We will be blameless. We will have glory. We will be God's holy, blameless, glorious inheritance. And it is the abundant riches of God's glory seen in us. But that glory is not only a result of the glorified bodies that will receive. There is also a process that we go through. There is a process that we refer to as sanctification that happens from the time of your conversion and should be happening even now to the end of this temporal life. The idea of sanctification is that you're growing day by day more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Take a look at chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. This is the instruction to husbands regarding their wives. Listen to how this is described. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, we read this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. This is actually instructions to husbands towards wives, that you are sanctifying her day by day. You're helping wash her with with the word, You're helping to bless her and to grow her so that she could be presented as holy and blameless. And look also back at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Paul here is talking about the result of having men gifted to the church to help us grow to spiritual maturity. And then starting in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, we read, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So we see there, in fact, the motto for our church is growing together in Christ, and it comes from these kinds of verses. The idea that we as a church are growing together, we are growing more in Christ day by day. So that sanctification, that process of sanctification is happening in an ongoing manner. And then look at chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. Chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. Paul here is talking about how we are to walk as Christians. And verse 22, it says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So while God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, we see that the process started from conversion. It's not like we die and go up to heaven and suddenly you go back to where you once were to where you will become. Certainly God will perfect us on that day. But there is a process of sanctification that should have already started and should be ongoing as you continue to grow. Let me make this clear. You know by now that you had nothing to do with your salvation, right? You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. But when it comes to sanctification, see, salvation, God did that work by himself. We call that a monergistic work. That's what theologians call monergism, monergistic work. He did it alone. But when it comes to sanctification, this is both you and God at work. This is what we call synergistic. You know the word synergy. That means working together. This is a synergistic work. Both God is at work in you and you are at work as well. Philippians 1.6 reads this. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that is a promise that God is at work in you, perfecting you. But when you go to chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and you can just listen. Paul says this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, not in my presence only, But now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this is not saying work for your salvation. These people already have salvation, but the idea of working out your salvation is thats is that you're seeking to be sanctified. You're seeking to grow. You understand that you are saved, and it comes now with a natural response to follow Christ and to obey him and to grow day by day. But Paul is not done there, because after he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, why should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because verse 13 says, for it is God who has at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we have a responsibility, but God works with us. And to paraphrase the great 17th century Puritan John Owen, when it comes to your growth, God works with you and in you, but never without you or apart from you. Let me say that again. He works in you and with you, but never without you or apart from you. So it requires that us apply ourselves to our growth. Beloved brothers and sisters, if you've been struggling in your own walk with God, if you've been stagnating in your growth, may I suggest that you have either failed to understand or you haven't been focused upon God's goal for you, God's purpose in you. You see, God's way for you to grow is so counter to the world today. This is so counter to the psychological wisdom of the day that is predicated upon building up your self-esteem, trying to convince you that you're good and beautiful just the way you are, that all of your faults and flaws are really what what makes you unique and special. That's what the world teaches. See, psychology wants to boost your self-esteem, not by changing you, but by changing how you see yourself. But God wants you to see your value, not on the basis of what you were in the past. Certainly not. Not on the basis of how you are now, but how you will be in the future once you are perfected. You are to focus upon God's goal for you. And seek to do everything you can to grow day by day into that image that God desires for you. So unlike the world, seeing your value is not based upon accepting your faults and flaws but by seeing the holiness, blamelessness, and the glory that God has willed for you in the future. And it's not just accepting who you are, but who you will be by growing in Christ as part of his body, putting off the old and putting on the new. And God's work in you is not trivial. He actually gives you his power to ensure that you succeed. That's really the kind of the third purpose, the third purpose behind the illumination that Paul prays for, the wisdom and revelation that he wants God to give you, and that is the surpassing greatness of his power, which we'll cover next time. But, beloved, as you contemplate these truths, as you contemplate the hope of his calling, which is meant to help you endure any circumstance. The hope of his calling, which is meant to produce joy, no matter what may come your way. The hope of his calling should help you stay on the straight and narrow, seeking God at every turn, seeking God in every facet of life, seeking to give him praise and glory and honor no matter what difficulties you face. And then there's the glory of, of, there's the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There's God's glory, the riches of his glory that's in you that God has planned for you. That is his goal for us to be holy and blameless. But we glorify God by, by working on that even now, by seeking to grow day by day, looking forward, keeping our eyes fixated upon that goal. You know, it's just like those Olympic athletes. Once every four years, they go out and compete. But in between those four years, they're training each and every day. And guess what they have their mind set upon? They have their minds set upon that competition that they're going to do in four years' time. They have their minds set upon what their goal is at the end of all that. When you go to college, you go to college for at least four years, and you have that goal of reaching that point where you can finally get that diploma and get out to the working world. We have goals in life, and we, when we fix our minds upon those goals, it helps us to focus. Well, beloved, in this life, our goal should be upon where God would have us, and that's to be holy and blameless and full of glory at the end times. God has given you the power to do that. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I have been talking about glorious truths that relate to believers, that relate to those who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me emphasize to you there is no hope in this world. You can put your hope upon material things, but those hopes will fade. Those hopes will fall away. Those hopes, even if you achieve them, you can't take them with you. And all of us will have to stand judgment before God. All of us will have to stand judgment for the fact that we are sinners, that we have trespassed God's law, we have broken his law, that we have sinned in various ways. We may not be sinners on the outside, but even in our hearts, we know that even if we're angry, even if we have lusted, even if we have wanted something that didn't belong to us, we have broken God's law. And we will stand in judgment before him. That's why Jesus Christ had to come into the world. That's why the Bible reading earlier today, when I read through John chapter 3, it says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus Christ came into the world not as a spiritual leader, not simply as an example to follow after. He came first and foremost to die on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. But you have to be able to repent of your sins. And to be able to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. If you repent of your sins, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. And a lot of these blessings that Paul has been covering here in the book of Ephesians would apply to you as well. And you will have a hope that will transcend any and all hopes that you can have in this world. It's a hope that can never be taken away. It's a hope that will never fade. It's a hope that will provide an inheritance. It will provide glory. It will provide a, a, a new world of promises far beyond anything you could possibly imagine. But it starts now by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and repenting of your former ways of life, committing to following Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, for the rest of us, let me finish off by this quote by John MacArthur. He writes, Until we comprehend who we truly are in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to live an obedient and fulfilling life. Only when we know who we really are can we live like who we are. Only when we come to understand how our lives are anchored in eternity can we have the right perspective and motivation for living in time. Only when we come to understand our heavenly citizenship Can we live obedient and productive lives as godly citizens on earth? Let me go ahead and close out in a word of prayer.